the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Daniel Freib. Hello. And Lionel Burney. Hello, Lionel. Hello, chaps. Hello. Well, we chaps, start, Lionel, by... Well, chaps, I'm stopping here. It was a pleasure. Oh. It was a pleasure, senores. Oh, what's happening? What's happening? What, what, where, where's that from? Are you, um, are you copying the, the, the government minister who resigned in the House of Lords this week at the no, dispatch box? No, chaps. I am aping, mimicking Superman Lopez. We found out. We, got, oh, we recorded yeah. last week a little bit too early for the very happy announcement. There is going to be a third series after Movistar documentary, El Dia Menos Pensado, or The Least Expected Day. And um, there's been a trailer teaser. And we've seen, well, we've heard exactly what Superman Lopez said as he got off his bike or turned around, started riding back down the road on the fateful penultimate stage of the Vuelta last year. I'm stopping here. It's been a pleasure, chaps. Um, okay, well, thanks, Daniel. Um, and uh, off you go to Astana. Um, but it's not being released on Netflix, this series, is it? Well, we don't know yet, Rich. Uh, I think it probably will end up. On Netflix. I'm actually ah, seeking okay. clarity on that right now. I may have it by the end of the episode, but um, it's definitely going to be on Movistar um, Plus, which is also where the first two were released, but they were also released on Netflix. So it may be uh, that the third season as well is released on both networks. Um, but it looks, looks uh, as though it's going to be interesting. There's going to be more about the women's team. I've already, you can already tell from the teaser. I mean, there were a few fall guys in the first two series. One of the fall guys, um, Jose Luis Arieta, no longer with the team. Um, rather, it was, it was all rather unsavory business. Um, he was kind of hung out to dry, really. Um, but the fall guys clearly, well, look to me as though they're going to be people who are no longer with the team. Um, in the third season, so Superman, and I have to say Mar Marc Soler as well. Um, mm. Well, it seems that, I mean, the, 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 the Lopez episode at the Vuelta um, may have been the catalyst for this, because it did seem until quite late on there wasn't going to be another, right up to the eve of the Tour de France, there wasn't going to be a third series, according to the director. Um, so it seems to have come together quite late on, and I think they've done some interviews haven't they after the events including with uh, superman lopez um lionel i was about to ask you please do tell me that you the top that you're wearing is not from maps deep winter collection no it's not richard it's a wildstone football jersey wildstone is a very famous non-league football club from northwest london and i just went running before we started recording and this is what i was wearing but it's obviously offended your eyes but it's it's, it's quite blue bright with and white, colorful white sleeves uh, it's got a sort of yellowy, orangey, orangey. neck detail. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's pretty it's loud. Not, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's not, not, not the not, cutting edge of sartorial elegance. Not a lot of perhaps, subtlety there. Um, anyway, off to a very frivolous start this week, but it's a very somber week in cycling because the, the, the news this week dominated by the dreadful crash uh, for Egan Bernal training in Colombia. We had an interview with Bernal in last week's episode. 
in which we looked forward to the tantalising prospect of Bernal, Pogacar and Roglic going head-to-head at the Tour de France. We heard from Bernal and how he fancied also riding Liege, Bastogne Liege, Flesh Wallonne this year. All that um, all that up in the air um, now, sadly, after his crash in Colombia. And we'll be talking about that um, later in the episode. What else do we have coming up this week, Daniel? Well, Richard, the intention was always to provide a sort of second instalment of our kind of ad hoc, very loose, very nonchalant seasons preview this week. And last week, as you say, we spoke about the Grand Tours. And today we are going to be talking about the classics, aren't we? Um, we're going to be talking quite a bit about Milan San Remo, which is obviously the first of the classics coming up in a few weeks. Um, talking of Italian races, I was alerted to the fact today that it's 100 days until the Giro d'Italia today, as of today. Um, so that will certainly be one talking point. Another will be Mattia van der Poel and his, well, current state of health, form, fitness, likelihood of him even partaking in some of the classics in which he would ordinarily be one of the favourites. Well, we'll get the news roundup in a moment, um, but we'll also hear much later in the episode, the end of the episode, from the, the world's number one cyclist at the moment, that's Mark Stewart in, down in New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> forgive me this indulgence, but a, a Scottish rider sits on top of the pile, although... Um, the racing is underway in Mallorca, and we'll we'll get we'll see see what happens there while this episode is unfolding. Before we get the news Jan- round up, um, haven't we got Brandon McNulty down the road? Surely Brandon McNulty must have some Scottish heritage. Oh well, so one Scottish rider could replace another at the top of the pile. Who knows? Um, before we get the news round up, very sad news about Bernal, and that's obviously foremost in our thoughts. I wanted to give us a, a happy story about a cyclist. Friends of my dad currently cycling in uh, Gran Canaria. One of them, Willie McCall, had a puncture yesterday and another cyclist stopped to help him fix it. And it was Peter Sagan, whose birthday is today. Happy birthday, Peter Sagan. But lovely story. He helped him uh, repair his puncture and a couple of photographs were taken. We'll maybe post those on our social media channels if we have permission. Um, But... A nice story. Um, Lionel, have you got the news roundup, probably, please? Just before you do, before you do, Lionel, I've probably shared this before on the podcast, but I once broke my chain, snapped my chain outside Milan, and Stefano Garzelli rode past. He didn't so much as nod in my direction. <laughs> and I was marooned <laughs> on the side of the road. didn't have a chain link extractor no. on him. Well, shall I crack on with the news roundup then? Quite a lot going on. And, well, there does seem to be a developing theme of absentees from major races. Daniel, as you mentioned, Matthew van der Poel, who was supposed to be riding the World Cyclocross Championships, which are this weekend. He will not be doing so. He did come back to cyclocross around Christmas time, as um, expected, but pulled out of a super prestige race in Belgium and has been struggling with this back injury and also a knee problem. He had minor surgery on his knee and he is not taking part in the World Cyclocross Championships, which are in Arkansas this weekend. He's also doubtful for opening weekend of Omloop Het Newsblad and Kerner Brussels Kerner at the end of February. Wout van Aert is also not racing in the cyclocross world. He's decided to focus fully on the road season. And so for the men's elite race, it does look like it will be a showdown between Tom Pidcock of Great Britain and Ellie Isabit, who has sort of dominated the World Cup for Belgium, perhaps with Lars van der Haar of the Netherlands thrown in there as well. Speaking of the Netherlands, the Dutch women's team have two major absentees. Denise Betsimer is unwell, not COVID-related, but Anne-Marie Worst, who has been runner-up the last two years, 
has tested positive for COVID, so won't be taking part. But the cyclocross worlds are over the weekend in Arkansas and will be uh, sort of evening time for those of us in Europe. Daniel, if you I want to watch the cyclocross worlds. Uh, I think Marina Voss will be going for her eighth world title. Is that right? She's she's not won it for a few years, but she, she'll be going for her eighth, I believe. Well, Lani, you asked me whether I would like to watch cyclocross worlds at the weekend pre pre-recording today we had quite an animated discussion didn't we about cyclocross <coughs> courses how engaging they are or aren't and um, when i found out that it was going to be in arkansas i was suddenly quite curious about what kind of course it it might be do you know anything about it dusty dusty muddy snowy well uh, unlikely to be snowy i would have thought but we will see over the weekend i'm looking forward to watching it but you're right i think L- you're getting away speculate from about weather conditions <laughs> no absolutely um playground no, looking forward to it it will be different playground different jim Belgium. imagine lionel was a weather forecaster he'd just stand there in front of the map and say not 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 indulging in speculation the weather currently exactly is, uh, yeah. Exactly. Quite happy to talk about what the weather's doing right now, but not looking ahead. Uh, this week, the UCI has unveiled a COVID protocol for all of its races. Um, basically, if the host country's rules are stricter than the UCI's protocol, then that country's rules will take precedence, of course. But the general rule is that for one day races and stage races shorter than seven days, the requirement to enter the team bubble will be for people to be either fully vaccinated or to have had a negative PCR test inside two days before the start of the race. And for stage races of more than seven stages, a negative PCR test will be required regardless of vaccination status. And there'll also be intermediate PCR tests during the Grand Tour. So that uh, does mean that the spectre of COVID is um, clearly anticipated for the duration of the season. Let's hope it's not too disruptive. The racing on the road is underway. The Australian Championships have taken place and the men's road race champion is Luke Plapp, the young rider with Ineos and Rowan Dennis, perhaps a unsurprising victor of the time trial championships the women's titles were won by nicole frayne in the road race and grace brown in the time trial and as you said richard the european racing season is underway in mallorca the classica valenciana was won by italian rider giovanni lonardi at the weekend amori capio of archaea samsic was second he's the son of johan capio who won Paris tour in the 90s het volk a couple of times as well and brabanza pale and Britain's Chris Lawless of Total Energies was third. There were no World Tour riders in that race because it's ranked 1.2. But the World Tour riders are in action today uh, in the Trofeo Calvia, the first instalment of the Challenge Mallorca, which is a stage race that's not really a stage race, isn't it? It's five one-day races and the riders can pick and choose which ones they do. Uh, we'll probably get the result of that before we finish recording. But as things stand, Brandon McNulty of UAE Team Emirates is up the road and Alejandro Valverde is in a chase group. He made his debut as a pro 20 years ago uh, this week, roughly this week, in the Challenge Mallorca, and uh, that race was won by Oscar Freire, Tom Steeles was second, and Eric Zabel was third, all long since retired. Alex Zuller and Abraham Alano both rode in a race. Some, of, some of their grandchildren are professionals. Exactly. I'm mean, half expecting to hear that Eddie Merckx was taking part in that as well. It feels so long ago. <laughs> but the Challenge Mallorca this week will see some big-name riders taking part. Enrique Mass of Movistar 
will ride at some point. Giacomo Nizzolo's first race for Israel Premier Tech. And Michael Matthews will be there. Alexander Kristoff making his debut for Antamarche. Pascal Ackerman making his debut for UAE. But there won't be Max Schachmann for Bora Hansgrohe because he is out with COVID. Richard, as you mentioned, Peter Sagan, it's his 32nd birthday today, which also makes me feel quite old. I can remember him as a 19-year-old taking part in the Tour Down Under, not all that long ago. Um, He's been on the recovery road, having contracted COVID for a second time, and he has been riding in his new team's colours, Total Energies, in Calpe, as you've revealed there, Richard. Well, Gran Canaria, he is currently uh, stopping to help, help cyclists fix punctures. Indeed. Uh, set to make his debut at the Tour des Alpes Maritimes du Var towards the end of February. And if that goes well, he may well ride Omloop Het Newsblad for the first time since 2017. Uh, some race plans coming up on the road. The Vuelta a San Juan has been cancelled because of COVID, which means that some big name riders, including Sagan, have had to rejig their race programmes. Remco Evnepoel and Filippo Ganna were also going to start their seasons in Argentina. Evenepoel is now set to start his season at the Vuelta Valenciana in Spain, where he will line up alongside Alexandra Vlasov, Wilco Kelderman, Jack Haig, Fabio Jakobsen, Mate Mohoric. That starts next week, as does the Saudi Tour, where a lot of the sprinters get underway. Caleb Ewan, Sam Bennett, Nasser Buhani, Fernando Gaviria, Dylan Groenewegen making his debut for Bike Exchange, and Jordi Meus are set to ride there. We didn't really mention last week that Primoz Roglic will make his uh, first appearance of the 2022 season in the south of France at the Fournardèche Classic and the Drome Classic towards the end of February. And Tom Pidcock, after the Cyclocross Worlds, will kick off at the the Volta al Algarve. what else? Well, this episode is focusing on the one-day races, isn't it? And a big change for the Kerner Brussels Kerner route was announced by the organisers last week. No Alder Quadamont climb this year. Instead, they're going to uh, go down into the Eno Ardennes region, which is just to the south of Brussels, really, uh, in the French-speaking bit, uh, seeking out some different climbs. So the character of Kerner Brussels Kerner could be quite different this season. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much indeed to Super Sapiens, our title sponsor. Um, we heard about the energy band there. I'm currently wearing my Super Sapiens energy band. Do you like that, chaps? It's got displays my blood glucose levels. I'll be able to monitor that over the course of recording this episode. Um, we ran a competition last year, or a couple of competitions, to win uh, three months' worth of Super Sapiens. One of those winners was Ed Pugh, his wife Jane nominated him uh, he's an anaesthetist she nominated him for all the work he'd been doing during covid and uh, she wanted to give him a 40th birthday present and her nomination uh, won him one of our prizes one of our giveaways so he received his super sapiens and had a go with them and enjoyed the experience and i caught up with him last week to find out what kind of insights he got from using super sapiens my name's Ed. I've just turned 40 and I work as an anaesthetist in uh, 
a uh, hospital in Newcastle. I'm a keen cyclist, although mainly indoors over the uh, winter months. It has been a difficult year. I'm sure it's been the same for everyone, really. But um, it's been nice to be able to go on the bike with friends, go out running, get some exercise. There's some sort of de-stressing time, really. And um, that's been, you know, really helpful in the last last year or so, because there has been some uh, some some moments which have been quite difficult to deal with. Uh, and getting out and exercising is a really important part of my life to to uh, um, to help with that. You know the sort of principles of uh, how your body uh, fuels itself during rides, but actually, it's only when you kind of measure the your own blood glucose where you know what's what's actually going on with with yourself. Um, so it's been something I've been interested in for a while, but uh, I've never actually been able to do it up until now. Um, I think it, it's, I, I, you know, I kind of have periods where um, I probably don't eat as much as I need to on the bike. Um, and it's seeing how that correlates with my blood glucose in real life, which has been quite insightful. So it's it's kind of changing how I look at doing my longer endurance rides and fueling a lot more regularly than I would kind of have done previously. Well, chaps, as I mentioned earlier, the news this week dominated by Egan Bernal's awful uh, crash in Colombia, where he's been training with a number of Ineos Grenadiers teammates, um, the, the sort of South American contingent, with some staff support as well. Ollie Cookson is there and um, several other members of Ineos's backroom staff. Um, we're going to hear a bit later from uh, Colombian journalist Juan Chari, presenter of El Cycling Podcast, our sister uh, Spanish language podcast, also a journalist with ESPN. He knows the road very well where uh, Bernal crashed close to Bogota. Um, what do we know about it? We know that Bernal was on his time trial bike at the time that he was alone, uh, just in front of some of his teammates. He had a team car behind him and he rode into the back of a, a bus that had stopped in front of him. Um, we, we don't really know too many other other details. Um, he hit the bus uh, with some impact. Um, there were photographs published that showed the, the bash to the back of the bus, which suggests that he was um, going very fast and hit the bus very, very hard. And he suffered some terrible injuries, a broken femur, um, broken ribs, punctured lung, uh, damage to his spine. He fractured his patella, so his leg and... Uh, back took the took the brunt of it and um, he was taken to hospital and underwent a lot of very delicate surgery um the hospital in advance of that were stressing that you know they were concerned about spinal cord injury that seems he seems to be okay in that regard he's now conscious and moving all four limbs which is great news first of all um, so, so far, early days, but the the signs are 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 encouraging from that point of view um but you know the 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 impact on his career in the short term is enormous. Um, we, as I mentioned, we spoke last week about how much we were looking forward to seeing him fully fit and back at the Tour de France this year. That's certainly not going to happen, and we we don't know when or if he will return to racing. So we can't really speculate too much on that at the moment. Um, but first and foremost, it's a a dreadful um, blow for a rider in the the prime of his career he has been coming back from 
relatively speaking, minor injuries compared to this. And uh, we were, as I say, looking forward to seeing Bernal back fully fit this year, weren't we? Yes, we were, Rich. And I think the well, the the volume um, and the sort of breadth of the messages of support that he's received and, and we've seen on social media from well, some very illustrious Colombians among many others, they sort of speak to... You know, the impact he's already had in professional cycling since he burst onto the scene a few years ago and also um, how one engaging character he is and we can attest to that, someone who um, people really take to and he's very he's very charismatic and, and very charming and that's another reason why I think people want to see him um, back as soon as possible. I mean, he's also had a lot of bad luck so far in his career and... Um, you know, the two bad crashes in 2019. I mean, let's not forget that he won the Tour de France in 2019 partly because um, a crash that year kept him out of the Giro d'Italia, which was originally his objective. And then he had another really nasty crash shortly after the Tour at the Classica San Sebastian. And then, of course, in 2020, um, whether those two crashes the previous year had played any part or... And there were also crashes earlier, much earlier in his cycling life and when he was still a mountain biker. But um, he, he had this long term, this chronic back problem, didn't he, which which troubled him in 2020 and it sort of even troubled him last year. So he's already someone who has had a lot of bad luck. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate incident, chaps, and a reminder of the hazards the riders face when they're training. They are in the saddle for you know, around a thousand hours a year. 30 plus thousand kilometers uh, they ride a year all on the open road or an awful lot of it on the open road where they are mixing with traffic and that adds to the danger it's not that the peloton is inherently much safer because the danger is ever present but it's a different kind of danger it is a more controlled environment whereas out on the open road with uh, traffic buses cars junctions um, unpredictable uh, events um, I mean Davide Formolo crashed into a wild boar that ran out into the road while he was descending La Tourbe in the southeast of France recently uh, an illustration that absolutely anything can happen and that the riders are in their working environment but their working environment is the open road and that that can be dangerous there have been a, a recent spate of training camp accidents as well all, all very different not all of them involving vehicles but Amy Peters uh, of SD Works had a very nasty crash south of Spain she's been transferred home to the Netherlands we don't really know the latest with Amy Peters but it was certainly a nasty uh, training camp incident and there have been others R- Remy Cavagna um, and Mari Van Sevenen uh, of Quickstep uh, well Cavagna fractured vertebrae um, Van Sevenen not quite so serious injuries, but that also was training camp um, crash a few years ago of course Giant Alperson um, uh, were hit by a, a car driving on the wrong side of the road that left Jean Degenkolb, Warren Barguil, Chad Haga and others with quite serious injuries I was reading um, Mark Cavendish's latest excellent book uh, the other day and you know he talks about the training camps uh, around Calpe that the Quickstep team do and how famously they you know a lot of the rides become races up to 30 riders racing on the open roads doesn't sound like um, it's necessarily the safest thing in the world because, as you say, um, Lionel, they're not in a controlled environment as they are to a much greater extent in a race. Um, 
There was a video released today as well of Bora Hansgrohe practicing their sprint leadouts with three-man teams. And I think it was footage shot from a drone so we could see overhead. The riders filling up one lane, but, you know, cars coming in the opposite direction and, and it didn't look all that safe. Um, that, you know, we're not assigning any blame at all for any of these other crashes or for the Bernal one at all, but it, it underlines the point that you were making, Lionel, about training for, you know, training, cycling on the open roads is, is inherently dangerous anyway, but sometimes training camps can can be even more dangerous just because the the size of the groups and, you know, the way that, the, you know, they're, they're training for racing and so sometimes they're reenacting race scenarios and that could be also on a time trial bike um, or practicing sprint lead outs or anything at all that could potentially make make it even more dangerous yeah you're absolutely right chaps and i suppose the 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 absolute kind of doomsday uh, the, the absolute worst example of of this phenomenon was amy giller the australian um, cyclist who was killed in 2005 when she was out um, training with the national team in Germany. I remember shortly after that speaking to Rod Ellingworth, who at the time was in charge of the British Academy, and he talked to me about how it was his worst nightmare and something that would almost literally keep him up at night. The the prospect of you know a group of riders going out and and being involved in an accident. Um, just on Bernal quickly um, on his injuries. It, themselves it's obviously too early to speculate on your know, times of recovery times and and also even how it might affect Ineos's plans going forward but you know there were parallels there are parallels with a few riders who have had this kind of injury in the past and Marco Pantani is one that's been mentioned I think not least because of the, the types of rider I mean Pantani was a climber happened to share or they they happened to share um, a birthday, Bernal and Pantani. And Pantani was also 25 when he had his terrible accident in Milano, Torino in 1995, October 1995, that was. Um, he had exposed tibia and fibula fractures. They were the main injuries. So slightly different from Bernal, um, but also very serious. And that was, as I said, it was October 1995 and Pantani was back racing the following year at the end of the summer he did his first races at the end of July um, it, it's very difficult to bring any levity whatsoever um, to to this situation what's what's befallen and but now but I did come across when I was just looking over reports um, at the time about Pantani's crash I did come across what for a long time I thought was an apocryphal tale and the uh, I'm sure you guys will both be familiar with this. You remember the story about Pantani racing in a wig and a leotard? Well, this was uh, this was. I remember the story. Yeah, this was uh, apparently a month before his actual comeback to racing, so midway through 1996. So the race was it was some kind of amateur race or weekend warriors race near um, Cesenatico, where Pantani was from. Um, he he attacked early in the race and apparently won in this leotard and and brown wig and the report in the Corriera della Sera or one paragraph of it went as follows if the technical analysis of the race seemed of secondary importance there was plenty of commentary about Pantani's look as a girl he was quite hot more than one competitor said 
An extremely reliable verdict since the Riviera Romagnola abounds with experts in that field of study, especially at this time of year. Did he compete as himself then? He wasn't sort of I, I, racing no, under he a gave, false name. He gave a false name. A false name, right. God. Yeah, it does. I think that's in uh, Matt Rendell's book, isn't I think it? it? On is, yeah. Pantani. Yeah. yeah. Returning to Bernal, we're um, hoping to hear next week from Team Enios about how they will uh, rearrange things for this year in his probable absence because we, we don't really expect uh, or certainly aren't banking on Bernal returning to racing anytime soon. And we wish him all the best in, in his recovery and hope for, for more um, encouraging news from his hospital in Colombia. Um, but to understand a bit more about... Um, Training conditions in Colombia, particularly, I spoke to the Colombian journalist Juan Chari earlier today. There, there was there were other um, clips released last week showing Team Ineos training as a group, and you know cars passing quite closely. There, there were reports of of near misses. Th- these could and do happen anywhere in the world, of course. Um, but I was curious to know a bit more about what it's like to ride a bike in Colombia, because on the one hand. Um, it, cycling is a really popular sport there. Uh, someone like Bernal is a, a national hero, and you would imagine that when he's out training on the road, he gets a lot of respect. On the other hand, in Colombia, as elsewhere, there's an awful lot of traffic. Um, so those two, those two things are um, seem to be in opposition to each other. And I wonder how they worked in practice for bike riders. Um, tellingly, Juan Chari had just been out, I spoke to him at 8.30 in the morning his time, he'd just been out on his bike for three hours, he'd been out at 5am precisely to avoid the worst of the traffic, he lives in Medellin but he is originally from Bogota so he knew the road and knows the road very well where Bernal had his crash, let's hear what he had to say about that stretch road in particular and uh, cycling in Colombia more generally Hi everyone, I'm Juan Charri, I'm journalist, uh, just cycling journalist uh, actually. I travel around the big racers, uh, big racer races uh, in the world, Tour, Vuelta, and Giro d'Italia, and Paris Nisa, covering for ESPN channel and covering for my own page, uh, juancharri.com. And I, I don't know, uh, I'm, just, I'm a movie maker. I'm filmmaker. Uh, my profession is that. I'm photographer, but the life was uh, send me to the sending me to the different waves, and one of that is cycling. So I'm here talking to you. Thank you for the space, uh, Richard. I'm really happy to to be here with you. Well, thanks for thanks for uh, giving us a Colombian perspective on the the week's big news, dreadful news about Egan Bernal. I mean. Bernal must be a hugely popular and well-known figure in Colombia. So, how how big has this news been in Colombia? The the, the news of his crash. Yes, uh, really. Um, this is like a really bad notice for us. You know, this is a really bad news for us because, like you said before, Egan Bernal is one of the greatest cyclists of of our country. Uh, you know, he's a like an idol, like a hero for us, and we we appreciate a lot what he was doing for our country. You know, uh, he's a big star here, and obviously the the crash, the news of the crash was uh, really bad for us. Was like a really impact news, you know, because we didn't believe at the beginning that was Egan Bernal in there. 
you know, and, and in the first was like uh, seeing pictures, uh, reading news, but we we can't accept that. And, and like I say to you, it's, it's really difficult to, it was really difficult to 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 believe uh, that was Tegan Bernal uh, in there, in the, in the floor uh, like that, uh, you know, was really sad. And we, we are all shocked. We are shocked here in Colombia, all the figures, all the sport figures uh, here, uh, they are sending uh, obviously a great message, message for his family. You know, not just the cyclists, all the football players, all the basketball players, all the politicians, you know, because he Bernal is a really big star here. We, like I told you, he's like our hero, you know, like in Aero Quintana, like Rigobert Turan, he's one of the greatest here. What we don't know all the details about the crash, but what what do you know? What's being reported in Colombia about exactly what happened? No, we don't have a lot of inform information here because you know uh, the team Ineos in the training camp here in Colombia was really close with his uh, training day with his all the um, uh, I don't know how to say like all the production was really close, so we don't. We don't have any details. Uh, yesterday, I was um, listening one of the interviews of of the motorman, uh, the motorcycle motorbiker that he is really known is Carolo Carol, and he was with the team. And he he talked something like uh, one of the one part of the team was in the on the race bike, and other part was in the Chichi bike. And obviously, Egan Bernal was one of them, and the the team stopped uh, in one part of the on the route, and and Egan continued his his ride and was like that, you know, was a uh, seconds, just a few seconds that uh, Egan was alone, and no more, no more details because, like I told you, uh, we don't have any uh, access to to these trainings. To this training on onto this or, or to this uh, specific of the team, you know. Um, you are from Bogota originally. Do you know the 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 road that he crashed on? Do you know um you know where it where it happened? And are you familiar with cycling yeah. there? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we are. I'm from Bogota, uh, and the crash was in Gachancipa. It's called Gachancipa. It's really near to Bogota. It's really near to Sipaquira, the, the more top of Igambert now. And uh, it's a white road, you know? It's a white road. We have, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it. It's like a bike line in, in Colombia, but it's not a specific bike line. Uh, we call Berma. It's a, a space like one point and a half meters uh, for for the bikes or something like that. But it's a white uh, White, uh, yes, uh, road, and it's a straight. It's a straight, you know. It's not, not. Uh, but the problem in Colombia, the situation in Colombia for the bike, uh, for the ride riders, is that we have a lot of traffic everywhere, everywhere. Uh, doesn't matter where you are riding, we have a lot of traffic, you know, all, all big, uh, yes, cars, and um, for the public transport, uh, we have that. For example, in the in the Egan Bernal crash was one of them, you know, for the public uh, for the public. But we don't we we I I mean Egan knows really well 
where where he was writing you know he's uh, is near to his mm -hmm. home so we we are like sadly we are familiar with that kind of uh, things because we are writing all the day and we have like a dog crossing the street like a moto a biker uh, riding in front of you or we have like that you know the public transport stop or the public transport maybe everywhere they, they can stop and pick up some people but the situation for us here in colombia is not uh, like safety you know we have like a normally here in latin america we have all the traffic problems that you hear you know and it's common for us so we we have to ride really careful but uh, shit happens everywhere i mean we don't we don't uh we don't know who if anyone was to blame in, in this crash they don't want to sign blame at all but what's what you know is it, is it just the volume of traffic that makes it inherently dangerous what's the what's the attitude like of other road users towards cyclists is, is there especially with cycling being such a popular sport in colombia is there respect for cyclists um or is it does it can it feel quite quite dangerous as uh, one of the things you said is uh, is great to to hear is uh, in the question for now nobody have to blame you know uh, we don't have to uh, make judges but uh, in colombia uh, we have different uh, types of 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 drivers you know like we are drivers too of our cars but it depends you know uh, maybe in some parts of the country uh, the culture of cyclists are more uh, specific and maybe they respect more but there are some riders that drivers that maybe you are riding and, and I don't know uh, the car is like pulling you you know so it's it's difficult to to ride a bike here in Colombia obviously we have like a, a space for that or maybe some routes that are uh, better for for our rides but uh, the sad in Colombia is that that. Uh, it's normal for us the, the the crashes. It's normal for us that accidents. And obviously, we are really sad for Bernal's situation, you know. But uh, can't happen for everyone. Can't happen for everyone. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the discount code SISCP25. And don't forget that if you do take advantage of that offer, you are helping to support the cycling podcast as well. So thank you very much and enjoy your field riding. I think you've got some breaking news for us, Lionel. Well, yeah, the Trofeo Calvia in Mallorca has concluded. And first blood to UAE team Emirates. Brandon McNulty has won the race with apparently a 60-kilometer break. And it's a 1-2 for UAE team Emirates because his teammate Joel Suter, a Swiss rider who's just joined him from the Belgian Bingol Pals team, was second. And I think Alejandro Valverde rolling back the years with fifth place. Um, wow! So he'll be in the he'll be in the grey over forties jersey tomorrow. <laughs> well, um, as we said earlier, we are loosely looking forward to the classics uh, in this part of the podcast. And one of the 
One of the um, great talking points has been and will be whether we'll see Matthew van der Poel in any of those classics at all. Um, there seems a very real prospect that we won't. Um, we know that he's currently on the sofa, not riding his bike at all. Um, his father, Adrie van der Poel, gave a couple of interviews at the end of last week where he he said that that was the case. I'd also spoken to his team manager, Alperson Fenix, Christoph Rudhoft, last week, um, and asked him about the state of van der Poel's fitness after his back injury and the more recent knee surgery. How How is he? We read that he had bit of knee surgery recently um how, how is his fitness at the moment is he able to train at the moment no 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 he's not training he's still uh, recovering and uh, having a break and how how long do you think he'll be uh, he'll be off for i really cannot answer uh, correctly or uh, something does that yeah does does it jeopardize his season at all i mean is it is it something to be worried about or are you fairly confident well, it's no uh, it makes no sense to worry about it because we cannot do anything about it is the only thing we can do now is be patient and wait uh till it really is okay and 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 wait till that till that moment to start training again are you are you confident though that he'll be back for the the classics uh no, but also there we are confident uh, that he will that everything will get back in order and that's 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 for the moment enough. That was Christoph Rudhoft of Alps and Phoenix sounding pretty glum about um Van der Poel's prospects of even riding the classics at all this year, which would be a real blow. I mean, you know, last week we were talking about how excited we were at the prospect of the three big guns going head-to-head-to-head to head to head at the Tour. The same applies to the Classics, where Van der Poel is, is one, certainly one of those big guns alongside Van, uh, Wat Van Aert, um, Julian Alaphilippe, obviously, in, in some of them as well. We've got Taddy Pogacar lining up at the Tour of Flanders this year, and Dwarf's Door of Landrin, let's not forget. Fascinating to see him in that race too. And... Um, Van der Poel would be would be sorely missed, and and from Milan San Remo as well. Remember, we really looked forward last year to seeing what he would do at Milan San Remo. I think everybody expected him to um, launch a pretty decisive attack on the Poggio, similar to the move he launched at the end of Strada Bianca. It didn't it didn't happen. He was badly positioned at the start of the Poggio. We never saw the best of him in Milan San Remo, but. His absence from the classics would be a, a massive blow, wouldn't it, this spring? Yes, I think it would, Rich. And we're starting to tip into the sort of territory of it becoming doubtful. I would suggest, um, you know, we're at the end of January. Milan San Remo is well; it will be about seven weeks away. I remember speaking a couple of years ago to a few years ago to Mark Cavendish when he had. Uh, he was suffering from Epstein-Barr virus and he found himself a couple of months out from the Tour de France and not riding. I remember asking him what, what he thought it would take to get ready from a standing start. And he, I think he said about six to eight weeks. Um, and that's for a Tour de France. Um, it's a different type of fitness, different level of fitness required um, in the classics. Probably You could probably get ready slightly faster um, be in some kind of shape, you know, if he, if he was back on his bike in the next couple of weeks. But it's certainly, well, certainly red lights are, are flashing, sirens are wailing at this point. 
One theory, um, which Adrie van der Poel, his father, um, rubbished, um, but then he comes from a tradition of probably racing 120 days a year, but one theory is that van der Poel has overdone it, you know, and I think the same, um, not an accusation, but the same fear has been uh, voiced about van Aert. You know, the riders who do uh, a cyclocross season and then go straight into spring classics, the Grand Tours, um, van der Poel hasn't done that year after year after year, but... He has raced, you know, mountain bike, cyclocross, road um, fairly intensively and consistently over the last few years. Um, Van Aert, you know, his, his approach to this year is, is interesting because he is avoiding the, the World Cyclocross Championship. He's done fewer races and that could be, uh, you know, that, that could be good for him um, going into this spring, I would, I would suggest. Yeah, the fascinating thing for Wout van Aert and Jumbo Visma is they've added Christophe Laporte to their classics team, and that's a real uh, uh, bonus addition, I think. Very fast finisher. Daniel, you're always uh, in favour of having fast riders. But a rider who can win in his own right uh, as part of van Aert's classics team for the likes of uh, Gent Wethergem, Tour of Flanders, and so on. I think that's a really interesting uh, addition to their lineup, and I think there's no um, doubt that Van Aert's decision not to do the Cyclocross World Championships is to give himself the best run at the very biggest races this spring, and by that I mean the Tour of Flanders, um, which evaded him last year. But not a bad spring, was it? He did still bag Gent Wethergem and the Amstel Gold Race, but uh, they're half a step down in terms of prestige um, compared to the Tour of Flanders, of course. Let's not forget Teish Banut as well, who um, isn't a sprinter, but certainly somebody who can support him in a race like like the Tour of Flanders. I mean, that's the thing he's been lacking. Um, and I think, yeah, that could make a real difference for him this year. Uh, and, chaps, um, on the same note, as far as Van Aert and Jumbo Visma are concerned, last year, of course, they were missing. And they came in for a lot of criticism for being... Uh, for, for leaving Van Aert exposed a lot in the classics, but they were missing last year Mike Turnison who um, was was probably... Another, another training camp crash, wasn't it? Yeah. Another serious training camp crash. So all of a sudden, they might be looking in very good shape. And Van Aert, if, you know, if last year that was any kind of excuse that he didn't have the, the support that he needed, it hopefully won't be this year. I mean, I would say, chaps, that in the same way that last year we, we sort of... Well, we, we homed in, we zeroed in on three riders, um, the, the sort of headline acts for the the Grand Tours. And we talked about this potential, um, but we, we spoke ill-fatedly, as it turned out, about this um, troika of, of Pogacar, Roglic and Bernal. Um, this year, obviously, people will we'll be expecting another big battle between, or they would have been looking forward to a battle between Van Aert and Van der Poel. But I'm just, just curious, Rich, um, Ineos with Bernal, I mean, we're, we're pretty sure that certainly his season is going to be badly affected. Um, you know, with no obvious contender to win the Tour de France, um, whether the, the, the thing that we have talked about them possibly doing for years might actually happen, um, i.e. them shifting a bit more, of the, a bit more emphasis, a bit more stress onto the classics. And, you know, what what are their options in that department? They've obviously got Pidcock, but he he's going to be spread quite thinly across lots of different objectives this year which is not to say that he won't thrive in all of them but um cyclocross mountain biking 
um, classics as well. But you know, what what does their classics team look like beyond him? I mean, it's a really interesting question, one to put to Ineos um, next week when we when we speak to them, because that that would almost seem like a, a worthwhile thing to do when you're looking at the prospect of going to the the Tour de France, which is obviously the big the big race for them, and not having the favourite or a or or a likely winner in in your ranks. So, um, it, because it's not, and it's it's about how they use their strong riders. I've heard Dutch colleagues express great frustration, for example, at the fact that a rider like Dylan Van Barl, who could be a, a great classics rider and, and did win a semi classic last year in very uh, impressive fashion, how a rider like that is his season is is also organized around the tour de france and his condition is um it, it, you know it, it is he's supposed to be at his best at the tour de france and that obviously means that he's not quite performing at his best in races where he could actually do a lot better so you know the, the, that's what they um that that's the kind of cost for riders like him and Michal Kwiatkowski and others who who can and are you know contenders in in the classics as well it was interesting because we heard from Tom Pidcock, didn't we, just before um, the Christmas break in our um, classics episode talking about the team and that he he believes they have strengthened for this year for the classics, but they're still not quite there. They're still not quite capable of uh, competing with the best. But with riders like him, Ethan Hayter as well, and uh, you know, Ethan Hayter is somebody who could probably be supported to really target these races because he's not yet uh, a key cog in the in a grand tour machine as Dylan Van Barl is. So yeah, it, it's 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 potentially something that could could happen. Luke Rowe is another one, you know, who over the last five, six, seven, eight years um, has put most of his energy into being at his best at the Tour de France and 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 therefore neglected races that he could probably do a lot better in. It really is a question of not the resources themselves, but how they have been utilised, isn't it? Because on paper, it's an extraordinarily mm. strong classics team with the likes of Kwiatkowski and, and Rowe and even Geraint Thomas. Uh, I believe Geraint Thomas, is he wants to focus on or he wants to target the Ardennes this year uh, rather than the Cobble Classics. You men- mentioned Hater there. I mean, he's a rider who doesn't seem to have any weaknesses, really. I- I've heard that... Um, and this is something we haven't even necessarily noticed or a lot of people haven't noticed. Um, if there is a concern about him uh, until now, it's been that he, he crashes quite a lot as well. He has crashed quite a bit in races. And, um, you know, he's obviously very young and he's still learning. But what a team it could be, um, certainly, as I say, on paper. And I think in the Ardennes last year, they rode extremely well. I mean, Richard Carapaz as well at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. Um, you know, at one point, it looked like he might right away and win it um, Ben Tulit, the new young rider very good ride last year at Flesh Wallone uh, he could be a really strong ally to Tom Pidcock in, in these races too so yeah they are putting together um, they showed it I think at the Ardennes uh, Classics last year, Tailgig and Hart rode well as well um, the Cobbled Classics have been a, a challenge for that team over the years. They've never really done anything in, in any of them. Um, in fact, Gianni Moscon at Pirate Bay is the closest they've really come for a number of years to, to winning one of them. Um, but since the sort of days of Ian Stannard. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, it, it, it's an interesting thought that the terrible accident to Bernal could 
see a, a, a change in, in focus direction. Although, you know, we're talking about races that start just in a, in a few weeks. It might be it might be a bit late to turn around that oil tanker, perhaps. Well, I think the big question or the big intrigue is what precisely does Tom Pidcock choose to target? Because on the face of it, he could win anything from Het Newsblad to perhaps even Flesh Wallone. I mean, he was sixth last year there. He can do equally well on the cobbles and in the Ardennes. It's a long old campaign that, especially when he's scheduled to do the Giro d'Italia in May. And at the moment, his focus, of course, is on the cyclocross. I mean, that's uh, almost half a year of intense racing. And uh, I just wonder how they will utilise Pidcock and balance up those resources between the cobbled races and um, the Ardennes races and, and Amstel Gold, which is not technically an Ardennes race, but it falls into that little block ordinarily. But of course, this year, it's actually between the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. So there's a few uh, unknowns about this spring campaign from uh, Ineos's point of view but I agree I mean they could field an extremely strong team around Pidcock for both the cobbles and the climbing classics um, and it's about how they deploy those resources as much as anything and we haven't even mentioned Ghana who's going to win Milan San Remo and, and prove your prediction of right course. and um, you just mentioned Pidcock and Flesh well on, or did you in the Ardennes? Of course, um, there's only one winner of Flesh well on this year. It's Primoz Roglic. And I, when I was preparing for the episode uh, this week, I made a vow to myself that this year is going to be unadulterated enthusiasm about Flesh well on. And before we go any further in our sort of classics preview, <laughs> I'm committing now to be the biggest Flesh well on evangelist in the cycling media this year. David Godou will win Flesh Wallone, of course, um, and Anthony Turgis. Um, now he's got Peter Sagan as a, as a teammate. Uh, he's he's been close with his shorts halfway up his thighs. What what's he gonna do this year? Could he win the new revamped Kerner Brussels Kerner, perhaps? The criminally rated Anthony Turgis has been working very hard on his sprinting. I was watching a video of about his sprint training the other day. It was quite intriguing how he was he was concentrating, practicing in training, doing sort of four-second sprints, which I thought was interesting. Um, the rationale being that the difference is often made over, you know, 20, 30, 40 metres, after which, you know, whoever you're sprinting against will often sort of see the writing on the wall and, and, and sit up. I mean, it's just struck me that my Wealdstone shirt, which is blue with white sleeves, looks almost exactly like the Quickstep jersey this year, doesn't it? And I can't believe that you're talking about flesh alone and not weighing up the possibility for some real, um, you know, f- falling outs between Remco, Maori Van Seven and, and Julian Alaphilippe on the murder Hui. I mean, you know, just line them up at the bottom and, and see, just let them all go and uh, see which one gets to the top first and uh, I mean, Alaphilippe's won there since uh, since Valverde's streak came to an end. Um, but I would say Alaphilippe, if he's uh, lining up for the Ardennes, which I think he said he's focusing he's, on this year. Yes, not doing the Cobble Classics. And he finally, because he's never won, of course, Liège-Bastogne, so that's going to be his big goal this year. So he should be um, on routine tooting form when he comes into the Ardennes. But I mean, how you know how are Remco and Mary Van Sevenant going to all gel together when the 
the world champion is the undisputed leader. I mean, that's uh, that's sort of putting Remco Evenepoel in his place a bit, isn't it, really? I mean, he hasn't really got a role in their team as a classics rider as things stand at the moment, uh, not doing the cobbled races and uh, probably won't be top dog for the Ardennes. Um, Will he even be riding the Ardennes? I mean, if he's riding, uh, I, I don't know. He, he might be, but I, I, I can't really see him being a factor in a finish like that unless he get you know unless he he clips off with about 50 kilometers to go on his own which which may well may well work um the outlier of course is the first one of all your favorite the first monument milan san remo your favorite daniel um and i think we're going to hear from somebody talking about that somebody who knows the race very well talking about that and it's really fascinating uh, because we talk about all these races um and you know, so many of them have similarities with each other. Milan San Remo is the kind of outlier, isn't it? It's it's the race that um, is sort of in and of itself, um, on paper, a really simple race, um, but in reality, a very very complicated race to try and win. Yes, Rich, and we refer to it as a sprinter's classic, the sprinter's classic, and. We heard last week from well, various people at Bora and we heard about their increased focus on the Grand Tours. But they've got a rider in Sam Bennett who is really focusing hard on Milan San Remo this year. I spoke to him last week about that and he said that he was in great form last year on the way into Milan San Remo. Midway through Paris-Nice he felt that he lost form in the second half of Paris-Nice or uh, didn't continue to get better and came in a little bit stale. Now, he has done Milan Taremo six times and his best finish is 28th, but he thinks that he can be in contention this year. Obviously, he's returning to Bora after a couple of years away at the Koenig Quick Step. Um, someone who did have a, a sprinter who had a, a much better record than that in Milan Taremo was Eric Zabel, of course, a telecom sprinter who won it four times. Four times? Yeah. Who won the race four times, um, sort of straddling the 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 end of the noughties, sorry, the end of the nineties, beginning of the noughties. And Sam Bennett, direct sportif, um, Rolf Aldag was a part of um, Zabel's winning team on a couple of occasions. Now, I spoke to Rolf last last week, and I pointed out something to him um, as far as Sam Rainway is concerned. The weights changed over the years, and I was just looking at the size of the leading groups over the years um so the the groups that came in and contested the victory uh 1997 when Zabel won 41 riders in 2038 riders 2004 62 riders um and actually in recent years the groups have been a lot smaller been 19 10 riders 26 riders 18 riders which is sort of contrary to what you might think as cycling gets faster and the level in the peloton increases improves you might think them be will be bigger groups coming in but no they seem to be smaller and smaller so i asked rolf last week in his opinion what has changed at milan san remo and also about one of the big stories in last year's race which was won of course by jasper stoven but um it was very much memorable for caleb ewan's performance and um he will again be going for milan san remo this year i think it's it's a type of riders because like who um who do we have now? In my opinion, riders are much more explosive now. So a type of Ala Philippe, and you know that those type of riders who can really, really make the difference. I'm not quite sure if we had that. Um, so probably you know the last few few ones that we had, then there was one 
and they soloed to the finish line. Um, always attacking at the same place, always getting away there and then getting to the finish line. Now we have this uh, much more uh, specific training and stuff in place that people can really do this massive efforts and uh, and field, field gets completely in pieces and explodes. And, uh, of course, those are the guys of Wout van Aert, those are the guys of Alaphilippe. Um, and I do think that in the past it was you know, probably also steady high speed, but nobody would be so outstanding to really blow it in pieces. So, yeah, the first one goes, second one could just follow, the third one can follow the second, the fourth one the third, and so on and so on. And then somehow on position 60 it breaks. Um, but that was due to that speed. Now I think, uh, you know, the races decided not just by people getting dropped somewhere, but by attacking to the front. Mm. So, and I think there is a difference that they ride off the front rather than we just ride really, really high tempo with team support. And then, you know, somewhere the peloton cracks and the sprinters uh, uh, like Cipollini have been dropped. It's not really that you say, okay, they they come to the line with two minutes, you know, that's like, it's always a little bit touch and go when people come back or they don't come back. But indeed, I think really like that the race is not decided out of the back, but it's decided towards the front. Yeah. That re really people can on, on that high speed still do massive efforts, attack and ride away. Yeah. And nobody was capable of doing that in the, well, really, really rarely a few people were capable of doing that in the past. Yeah, yeah. And then the other day, Rolf, um, Sam was asked about teammates for Milan San Remo, and he immediately started talking about guys to take him into the climbs, Cipressa Poggio. But it, it kind of it occurred to me, it struck me that last year when Caleb Ewan was on that fantastic day at San Remo, I mean, what is almost more important than what he lacked was someone on the other side of the Poggio. Um, especially having appeared to be so strong on the Poggio, it was always inevitable that, that he was going to be well, the, everyone was mm. going to attack him. I mean, would you agree that that is absolutely key? And yeah. did this apply with Eric as well, that it was about having guys on the other side of the pod, Joe? Well, you have to have other sides. I mean, that's like, you know, like I always feel strong about the race that we lost, that we should have won, than actually the races that we won. Because right. then it's like, yeah, we've done great. We won wonderful. Uh, but the race we didn't win, um, that bothers me the most. And, you know, one example is actually San Remo when uh, Chmiel won. Yes. Because we as a team were not there. We were not in the race. We were all completely cooked uh, for whatever reason, just not in shape or, or just not in position or something. So Eric was the other one, the only one really surviving. And I think somebody was swinging there, uh, Ellie or something. Um, but we could not really do anything. And then uh, Chmiel changed the side of the road, rides away, uh, wins solo, Eric wins the sprint second. Um, so I agree to say, like, you know, having somebody on the other side of the of the poacher is pretty helpful, and we need to get there. I also think, like, it's just right now, it's pretty risky to just put all the eggs into the basket of a sprinter. Yeah. Because I think, you know, the the most we benefit is have like a punchy guy capable of of following the guys and then riding completely um, conservative to make sure that group goes nowhere. Um, to destroy the rhythm of the first group, to give your sprinter a fair chance to come back, then do the job for him, and then um, you know be be uh, like hopefully you know in the in that group with more people that can even do the lead out. But uh, and if not, if you don't come back, at least you're still fresh if you stay on the wheel as fresh as you can be after 300 kilometers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and, you know, the sex printer doesn't come back. Okay. You see that on the, you know, you get a judgment for it and then you can still go for a victory. So I think for the team, if you, if you just think one dimensional sex sprinter, we control it into the climb, we can control it over the climb and we control it after Poggio. Hmm. It's pretty optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, but the Caleb thing, I think where he completely screwed himself is like he showed the world. Uh, way too much how strong he is yeah yeah was because when he uh, wrote um you know when he went across about fanat and even as a gap of two meters but for, there he lost the race yeah so you think a sprinter if a sprinter is on a great day and he is he is there on the podio he's better off you know just sort of hanging slightly at the back of that front yeah. group yeah, yeah. not even being seen you yeah. know just don't be seen at all just completely hide do an oscar no, Ferrer. completely dead yeah. Like, okay, even if he gets there, we have a chance. Because if a Caleb Ewan rides across everyone attacking Alaphilippe, attacking and whoever, Walt is attacking, and he gets over them, well, why would you ever, you know, ride with him to yeah, the line? exactly, yeah. 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 So, and if you just swing, you know, with the, if you're that strong, see, I mean, if, if he's that strong, he can make active decisions. If you just hang on for your, you know, their life, then it's not about making decisions and it's just live with the consequences. Mm. But he seemed, he was so good that he could actively think about what do I do here? And yeah. he could basically ride with looking at it to say, if I have to move because, you know, the guy on seventh position is starting to drop, he was capable of going around him. Yeah. Otherwise, just stay there, stay there, stay there, be invisible and then surprise him all when you hit the finish line. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit, he was still there. Yeah. <laughs> completely forgot about him yeah, yeah so i think he he lost the race when he took the lead on the podio i think then he lost the race yeah and just very last thing then rolf um on sam Remo, does it feel when you're in the race i mean i know it's a few years ago now since you've ridden it but do, do you really <laughs> do you really sense that of all the races you do in the year it's the one where you have the least amount of time to correct mistakes as a team and as a rider, that once you've made a mistake, often there is just no way back. It sometimes looks like that. Well, yeah, it looks like, well, the, the problem is like, you know, the chance of doing mistakes is pretty big because um, there are so many different scenarios. Yeah. You know, on, on, on a couple of other races, classics, there's just like, you know, there's just one scenario. You know, you, you have to, um, whatever, you know, take Leon, uh, Liege, it's like, uh, what is it? Oh, or Foucault or whatever it is, yeah. you know, you get there and you know what you do. You just can't be dropped in the first part. You have that little downhill. And then if you have the legs, you have the legs. If not, not. It's literally just one scenario. But into the pod, you still get with so many riders of, and different type of riders that you still have 12 scenarios. Mm. And it's hard to cover all 12. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a race with, uh, you know, from the outcome, um, it's really hard to predict. And therefore, or you cannot really like pre-plan every scenario. That's really like, you know, you have to like react really fast and you might be completely wrong because you think hey, today the sprinter is not going to make it and then they do. And, you know, you're like, oops, okay, we forgot our fast guy here. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, okay, 15 is also good. So I think that makes San Remo pretty interesting in the last couple of kilometers um, to how it, how it, tactically unfolds well very interesting stuff from rolf aldag they're always one of the the, the most thoughtful uh people in cycling uh, you know 
going back to HTC High Road, the way he'd be able to dissect a, a Mark Cavendish sprint win or a, a Tony Martin win was always it was always great to hear. And um, you mentioned to him in your conversation with him, Daniel, that he and Bora Hansgrohe seemed like a very natural fit. Um, and and he mentioned the fact that one of the obstacles, perhaps, from joining that team earlier was the the spat between um, Bora Hansgrohe and Dimension Data when he was at that team when. Uh, there was a crash involving Sagan and uh, Mark Cavendish, um, for which Sagan was uh, was penalised and sent home from the race. Um, and it, that was interesting to be reminded of that because it, it slipped my mind. Um, but he said that you know both each team was sort of pitted against the other in the aftermath of that incident, and that perhaps was an obstacle to him joining the team earlier. Interesting to be reminded of that. But yeah, a, a really interesting appointment by Bora Hansgrohe it'll be fascinating to see how how the team does with Rolf Aldag involved can Sam Bennett win Milan San Remo I think he he has the sort of requisite abilities characteristics I as I said to Rolf there it sort of didn't alarm me I mean certainly Sam Bennett knows a lot more about cycling than me but when he talked about teammates before the Poggio and Cipresso rather than teammates after I you know as I said to Rolf there in the interview I think um Recent history has shown that for sprinters, it's it's almost more important on the other side of the Poggio descent as you come into the last two or three kilometres than it is before before the Cipressa and the Poggio. Um, of course, it depends how, how strong someone is on the day. If they're as strong as Caleb Ewan was last year, then they probably don't need too much help. Um, of course, if those teammates are thereafter, they'll also have been there before. So that's, uh, that's they're very not, true. They're not they're not parachuted in on the of the Poggio. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, the most interesting point for me was just his his sort of advice to any sprinter about how to win Milan which is to be invisible, to not show your hand, in the way that Caleb Ewan did last year. Um, I don't think Bennett would have a problem not showing his hand on the Poggio. Um, the challenge, of course, is whether he can he can still be there and and he's a guy who can get up climbs better than some other sprinters sometimes on a on a really good day um but he's also a guy i you know you can see him sort of being the last man in the group just hanging on as well so you know i, I who knows i mean we always say milan san remo is 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 the the easiest race to finish and the hardest race to win don't we just on sam bennett i mean he hasn't finished a race since the Volta Al Algarve in May. It was held in May last year. It did four one-day races in the end of September and into October, including the Irish National Championships. And so before we can talk about him as a contender for Milan San Remo, it would be really interesting to see how he gets on, first of all, next week at the Saudi Tour and then the UAE Tour and then Paris-Nice, where he's had um, a lot of success in the past winning stages um, but we need to see a few signs from him in the coming weeks, I suggest, because Milan San Remo is one of those races, isn't it? That I mean, it's it's the endurance classic. It's having that speed, that top end at the end of um, you know a, a long day in the saddle. And whilst a lot can be achieved in training, you know, he needs to probably uh, get back to that race intensity and and show a little bit, but perhaps not too much. Before we get to Milan Will there be Remo? beef between Sam Bennett and Bora Hansgrohe and Quickstep, or do you think that between the riders it'll be? I, I suspect that between the riders it, there isn't any bad blood there. I think it's a Patrick Lefebvre, Ralph Denk thing, isn't it? The sort of home furnishings, kitchen 
utensil super classico. Um, <laughs> you mean, you mean somebody it, laminated, laminated kitchen flooring. fittings, laminated isn't it? Laminated flooring, flooring versus extractor versus fans and yeah, and, <laughs> and and taps and showers. Shower let's not forget. Yeah. I mean. I mean, who, who, you put the kitchen in first, don't you? And then put the flooring down. Or do you put the flooring down first and then put the kitchen in? I, I just I mean, don't will, know. Will Bora Hansgrohe throw the kitchen sink at it? That's the, <laughs> that's the question. Just on anyway. uh, quick step, sorry, Rich, you were asking whether Evanapool would ride the Ardennes. I believe that is the, the race programme okay. that he's outlined. Yeah, first tilt at Fleshwell. Of course, Wellone the Welta is the race he's going for in terms of Grand Tours, isn't it? So it sort of frees him up in the spring to... It, you know, if he was doing the Giro, he'd be away or prob- probably away at an altitude camp in when the Ardennes Classics are on. And so from that point of view, doing the Vuelta actually kind of makes makes sense, doesn't it? Because it does give you quite a free hand to, to pick and choose races earlier in the year. Well, just before we wrap up what we're looking forward to from the one day races, I'm looking forward to seeing how Sonny Cobrelli goes this spring. He's missed a few days of the Bahrain uh, training camp because of uh, close contact with a someone who had covid but uh, he's got a full schedule of classic races of course one paris bay which we did overlook somewhat in our review of the one day races at the end of last year probably just because it was so recent in our memories but that was a very impressive tactical victory um at the finish there wasn't it i mean he did get a bit of criticism for uh, sitting on and 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 just making matthew van der poel um show his hand but i mean i thought it was just excellent bike racing tactics you know the getting over the line first is what counts uh, you're not going to make it easy for rivals when coming into the the velodrome at the end of Peru bay but uh, a rider who could uh, on a good day win anything from milan san remo to a Peru bay again or perhaps even a tour of flanders if he got into the the right move a sort of a tough rider hard rider but uh, very fast when it comes down to the finish um so perhaps won't be as overlooked as perhaps he was in our end of season review Lionel just before we hear from the world's number one cyclist to to close out this week's episode um I want wondered about the someone who's not the world's number one cyclist um that's you uh how you how do you get on and the listeners are are eager to know how you got on with your new map kit of course we announced last week a new collaboration between map um and the cycling podcast map tcp uh, look out for more news about um, what form that will take in the next few weeks but uh, you took delivery of your kit last week how did you get on with it well Richard as you know my box of map kit arrived on recording day last week and I hadn't had a chance to try it all on but you'll uh, be well aware that after we finished recording I tried everything on one by one and I went for my first ride in the uh, deep winter collection which uh, comprised of a deep winter base layer uh, the thermal bib tights and the apex jacket and i have to say really really effective at keeping out the cold and the wind we are still in deep midwinter here in the uk Um, but just lovely stuff lovely to wear uh, very warm very snug like a second and third skin wearing the thermal uh, bib tights and the, the base layer and then the jacket over the top sort of minimal clothing but maximum warmth well, if you want to um, see what MAP have to offer, including the Deep Winter Collection, go to map.cc. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. Uh, now, I mentioned last week, Mark Stewart, young Scotsman, sits on top of the pile in the at least the Pro Cycling Stats rankings, having won at the New Zealand Cycle Classic earlier this year. 
fascinating story um, how he happened to be in New Zealand and got got stuck there in lockdown um, and and ended up obviously staying. Um, so how did that happen and what does he do next? Well, I spoke to him. I also spoke to George Bennett of UAE Team Emirates and we'll be hearing from him over the coming weeks because he's moved from Yumbo Visma to UAE Team Emirates and he has some interesting things to say about that. So we'll hear more from him. But first of all, here he is on Mark Stewart and then we'll hear from Mark Stewart. I was, I must say, I, I, I was, um, I was very pleased to see you were you were beaten recently by a, a Scotsman, um, Mark Stewart. Um, Mate, <laughs> I tell you what, this guy is is such a talent. I raced him. So what happened was, I last year at the New Zealand Nationals, there was this guy because I didn't really know heaps of New Zealand riders. I've been away for a long time and stuff, and I was at the Nationals, and it was really hard, and there was maybe like five or six of us left and there was one guy quite strong and I was like man this, never heard of this guy before but never seen this guy and I didn't know anything about him he was in some kit that I didn't recognise and uh, you know I get to the finish I won and he got third but got promoted to second because of a, something in the sprint or I can't remember but anyway and I was talking to him he started talking to me he was Scottish I was like oh what, what do you, how the hell can you race our nationals? <laughs> and so he just come out here and got stuck in lockdown with his girlfriend. She's a cyclist up in Cambridge. And somehow he was able to race our nationals. And I was like, shit, lucky he didn't win. <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's when I first came aware of him. And then he showed up this year at the Cycle Classic. So I just did this, you know, new tour in New Zealand. It was great. It was a great week, great way to start the intensity training. And he was just on another level. And, um, I, I think he's, I mean, he's probably a bit older than you. He's, I mean, he's 26 old, now, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I definitely see he'd be in the Pro Tour soon because he, really? um, I think he came from the GB track squad because That's he's right. definitely got yeah. that. Yeah, um, he's, he's done a lot on the that, track, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could see he just had all the seated power when yeah. I was just flapping, trying to, <laughs> we were trying to basically isolate him and attack him and all the stuff and he didn't even flinch. It seems to have caught a bit of attention winning this race, and maybe it's just because it's the first race of the year, or I think partly George Bennett riding next. I don't think mm. I, I don't know if any French pros are allowed to ride any of the, the various two point twos that are in France and in, in June, July. But yeah, um, basically, I came out to New Zealand at start of twenty twenty to visit my girlfriend. So I kind of accidentally entered into a long distance relationship with my partner Emma coming accidental because I guess no one starts a relationship thinking long distance this is exactly what I'm here for but kind of we met and back in the 2017 and spent the Commonwealth Games together and various kind of different campaigns she'd come over to Europe for the summer and we spent a lot of time together so yeah it's kind of developed like that so in 2020 I moved out well I didn't move out here I came out for a month then New Zealand shuts borders the whole kind of world shut down so a few months kind of proceeded. British Cycling dropped me a, a week after I'd come out, which because it had just it'd been the World Championships and I'd kind of had a bit of a poor performance there. So they were, to be honest, well within their rights to, to kind of let me go, especially if you know, the other guys were performing so well, which ended up, to be honest, being the, the best thing they could have done for me because it meant I had the freedom to stay in New Zealand for as, as, as long as I like, to be honest. It actually... Yeah, I kind of say a lot of a lot of decisions have been made for me, 
I've always been relatively lucky. Like I've always thought the skill set I have is mental stability and resilience, I guess, as opposed to <laughs> it'd be a lot easier if I just had a really good sprint or a massive engine. But I've kind of, I can, I can stay quite steadfast in my approach to things and in my ambition and my motivation. So, so, so even being part of, like, I just want to be a professional cyclist and I want to ride my bike and I want to win races. So the goal was never actually to be on British cycling. That was just at the time, what was best facilitating that. So, so when they dropped me, it was just, okay, well, I was basically, it felt like a bit of an island anyway, in my last year with British cycling. So it was actually, sometimes you can think of, you, like when you get dropped from British cycling, you can think, oh no, like that's it. I've lost a wage. I've lost being part of the best team in the world. But at the same time for me, I'd also lost coaches that I was potentially struggling with. I'd lost having to live in the city centre of Manchester and train throughout the winter, you know, and basically getting told what to do every day. So there was actually, although you're losing negatives, there's actually a lot of positives that come from it as well. So I kind of thought of it like that and thought, okay, well, actually, this could be a really good thing. It's just basically the thing that will determine it is how I respond to it. I could think, oh, this is really bitter and I, I could have been the best if it wasn't for one person. <laughs> When I was at British Cycling, you're kind of quite scared of leaving a centralised programme for fear of what you'd do next. But when you actually open that up, you like I got four jobs within a few months, and I've still got those jobs. I just oh, really? significantly reduced my hours because my fifth job is now riding for, for Black Smoke. But I was a lifeguard team leader at the local swimming pool in Cambridge. So that was my main job. I was doing that anywhere from... 30 to 50 hours a week because it was kind of shift work I'm coaching at the local velodrome I do some schools work with a kind of a Maori based school program here so we go into low socioeconomic schools into well basically every kind of school and kind of develop a self deliver a self development program and I do a bit of babysitting so a bit, bit of everything really I've I, picked up a few various contacts throughout the years and I think I've been hesitant to contact them because because I just know the first question people ask is okay well what what's the results how good is he so I think so I contacted a few people and hopefully opened up a few channels of communication after this result but but like I said I know that the focus has to be getting to Europe and trying to win races there and if I do do that, then I think I'll really well start pushing and start like annoying people, I guess. And yeah, and really chase it. But I know for the for the time being, for the next few months anyway, I can't rest on my laurels. I know I'm going to come to Europe and there's going to be 100, 200 George Bennett's in every race. And, and, it, and the game's going to change again. And I need to be ready for that. So, so yeah, I am trying to push a few things. And yeah, to be honest, like, yeah, if I was to speak openly about it, I honestly don't, it's really hard to get an agent. People say, oh, Ed Clancy used to always say that to like me and Hollywood, you should just get an agent. I would if I could, no one wants to represent me, but, but that's because results speak. So I'm, I'm sure if I came next year and I won to Britain, you'd have three or four agents lining up. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's why my main focus is on just getting results because I know that that'll be the first piece of the puzzle but I've got contacts and 
And I'm also about, like, if there were to be teams, it's also, because I'm a bit older now, you start to realise that you've got things to offer. I definitely at British Cycling, you just felt like you were lucky to be there and you'll take everything you can get. Whereas now, I've actually, like, I realise my value, I realise what you can bring to the table. So I actually look forward to, if I do get success, not just kind of, yeah, not just feeling lucky for everything and feeling like, oh, I shouldn't ask for any more because I'm just lucky to be here. Actually realising, yeah, just being a bit older. And yeah, so I look forward to kind of, hopefully I'll get the opportunity to to kind of run through that again, but with a bit of a maturer mindset. Well, chaps, that was uh, Mark Stewart, who George Bennett has tipped to become a world tour rider sometime soon. Watch this space. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting how he how he gets someone he comes over to Europe in April um, and races for the, the New Zealand team Black Spoke in Europe and um, we'll be watching that with interest um, what have we got next week what are we doing next week are we, we're kind of fully into racing next week aren't we we've got um, Marseille at the weekend and they're starting to come thick and fast aren't they they are Richard yes from the weekend I think there's racing every day next week so we will see who gets off the mark fastest and I will probably pay my UCI World Rankings um, segment, which I've been looking at the, the point and purpose of the World Rankings and also the history of the various rankings and season-long competitions and asking the question, what is the point of a ranking in road cycling? Does it really serve any purpose? Um, and so... The, the last time last time I looked at the World Rankings, Laurent Jalabert had been number one well, that's for the a, previous that's 456 a case in weeks. Yeah, that is a case in point. I mean, the World Cup at least meant something, imperfect though it was. Um, the, the World Tour, um, well, I'm delving into this sort of promotion relegation Farago as well, but I think it's very telling that, Richard, you mentioned the Pro Cycling Stats Ranking, which, of course, has no... You know, genuine legitimacy in the actual organisation of the sport, but is something that we refer to uh, on a daily basis. I can't believe, Lionel, that on the day after Burns Night, you'd seek to discredit <laughs> the achievement of a of a Scottish rider who sits currently at the top of that ranking. Um, no, that's not what I'm as doing we, at as all. we speak. But anyway, we'll 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 look at the world <laughs> rankings and uh, maybe the implications of some of the early race results will uh, you know have some kind of significance on that relegation battle but as Jonathan Vorter said to me you know there's something deeply flawed about a system where the most uh, interesting thing about it is who is at the bottom rather than who is at the top you know there's jeopardy for the teams at the bottom but what is the bonus for the teams that win the ranking obviously um, quick step Patrick Lefebvre probably places a lot of stock in the importance of being recognised as the world's number one team, probably plays well with sponsors, a bit like Movistar go for the team classification in the Grand Tours because it's probably quite an easy thing to sell to the marketing directors of the sponsors, it's an easy understandable thing, more so than perhaps saying oh we won 21 races, um, but there is a sort of historical problem with how we evaluate um, the, the riders, the teams and how that all knits into the way the calendar is constructed. Probably long overdue, a proper rethink, but um, with so many vested interests in that, I'm not holding my breath necessarily. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I think the best team is the one whose leader wins. Uh, but anyway, we'll maybe return return to that next week. Talk, 
Speaking of history and looking back on the rankings of 25, 30 years ago, do you think history will be kind to that new EF Easy Post jersey that was unveiled yesterday, do you think? I can't imagine too many people in 20 years looking upon that as a, you know, a, 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 a garment of, of uh, great sartorial elegance. I reserve and, judgment you know. on all these things until I see them in races. Um I think already, yes. uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I see a lot of pink around this year in the the women's peloton, certainly. And the I, I liked last year's EF kit, the sim, the simplicity of it, the elegance of it. I like that. This this looks a bit messy to me, but I will, as I say, reserve full judgment until I see it in a race. Um, and. Uh, yeah, but everything says test, something it? about its own era, doesn't it? I mean, back in 1996, I wouldn't necessarily have said that the MG Technogym jersey would turn out to be one of my favourites, but uh, I have one of those. It's got the MG logo with the apple in the middle and a kind of just a hodgepodge of red, yellow, and blue diamonds on a predominantly blue jersey. It's at the time, what I do not understand is ordinary, but now I look at it and think that really says mid nineties to me, and I, I like it. What I don't, what I never, I've never understood is the nostalgia for the the old Z Peugeot um, jersey. I never liked it at the time. Don't like it now. I loved it at the time, and I still like it, and I have one in my box of kit. Um, mm. I should probably display it on my little wall here that you've not remarked on that those jerseys have changed oh, yeah. week by your week. display yeah. on the wall behind me <laughs> yeah, but next wow. week yeah, next week I'll hang up pink, MG uh, Technical uh, and Z Peugeot up there you got a polka dot jersey green jersey and a um, combined jersey they look mid 80s late 80s that's the 1989 late collection 80s. okay I know this isn't the place to make allegations scandalous allegations but i think lionel might have half inched my collection of mape jerseys as well my very extensive collection of mape jerseys going back over his point they are in a, years. They are in a bag all beautifully folded from our theater tour uh, pre-pandemic <laughs> along with richard's tour of Speyside leaders jersey i think is in there as well and possibly <laughs> winners yeah, you can throw that. Winner's jersey. There's, there's a couple of yours in oh, there. Oh, that's neatly folded. They're all neatly folded, all on hangers. I'll put those up over the coming weeks on the wall of uh, oh, wonderful. the glorious wall. of. You can comment on them as you see. I mean, I hope someone's getting a screen grab of this so we can share it on social media. There we go. Chaps, oh, final, final word from me. Final footnote to this week's episode on the Movistar documentary currently it will currently as things stand only be broadcast in Spain on Movistar plus however moves are afoot a deal is hopefully being put together um, for the international rights to be sold or given or seeded in some way to Netflix. So it may well find itself onto Netflix. And that is certainly what the makers of the film are hoping in the next few months. Well, they are cycling fans. Get writing to Netflix or whatever, however you get in touch with them, um, begging for the series to appear there. That's all for this week, I think. Um, thank you very much, Lionel. Actually, sorry, just before we go, I should mention um, Service Course came out last week uh, in, in contained a, an absolutely brilliant package by tom wally on rally a kind of social history of rally um 
It's getting lots of really great reaction, and it's just a, a, a sheer pleasure to listen to. So, Service Course with Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks was out last week, and uh, do give that a listen. And Second Podcast Femina returns this week. Myself, Rose Manley, and Orla Shinoui, that will be coming out a day or so after this episode. And we'll be back, the three of us, next week. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Jack.